I have a love-hate relationship with forums because I probably spent, you know, at least three or four years of my professional life being a developer just working on forums. I also have the same thing except for the love part. Yeah, it's all hate. It's all hate. Greg, guess what episode this is? 65. It's episode 009. Do you know what that means? This is the ninth episode. No, it is not. The, no, you have Pointers. Failed. Pointers. This is the 10th episode, Greg. We've done 10 of these. Man. That's crazy. That's pretty impressive, I think. How many of them were good? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you're listening to this, let us know how many... If you've listened to all 10 episodes of the public function show so far. Let us know how many of them you legit thought were good. You won't hurt our feelings. I know some people who would say maybe zero. You don't think we have at least one? I thought there was a few good ones. I I feel like we've had more good ones than not good ones. Well, let's try to be quicker. We've been told we've been too long. Uh, I don't don't care. Well, I mean, we could still try to talk faster. More for your money. What, what well, money? that's why we put stuff in the post show. So then you can be like, oh, I'm going to listen to the post show or no, I don't care about the post show. Post show is usually off topic, but it's still kind of fun. So I put it in there because it's fun. I enjoy it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Okay. Sounds, sounds good to me. I mean, I make, I make the show for us, Craig. I make the show for me and for us and our three listeners in Sweden who literally listen to every single episode. So Are you sure up. they're not bots? I don't think they are because they they literally within a couple of hours of every episode going up they they've downloaded it. Hmm. Interesting. There there's one person in one city that I can't pronounce that listens to every single episode and then there are two other people in two other cities that I can't pronounce that have listened to like every other episode. So we have like I would say f- between 3 and 5 individuals in Sweden who listen to us. So shout out to our Swedish listeners. Wow. You can get all 59 smashing books for a hundred bucks. I feel like that's pretty good value. Yeah. Why are you looking at the smashing books, Craig? What what are you checking out there? I really like them. Smashing is pretty good. For those who don't know, Greg is referring to Smashing Magazine, which is a publication. I think they're from the UK, right? They're from Dopeness. Whatever that is. They're pretty good. They they put out an actual... Do they still put out a print version of their magazine? Yeah. Well, they have a print version of the Smashing Books. I think they still put out a print version of their magazine too, which I think is actually really nice, especially for design because it's like you're, you're actually looking at a, like a piece of paper that has something about design on it. I, think I, have a good, nice. I have a good one for you. It says clients, colon, friends you never had. Oh my God. And it says this ebook... Clients, friends you've never had provides valuable advice to foster stable relationships and a fruitful cooperation with your clients. If that crickets, book, crickets. If that book actually <laughs> does what it says it does, it's worth $2,000 for each copy. It's $4.90. It's worth like $15,000 per well, copy. That's why they have 59 books because half these books are $4.90. But they're like very... 
yeah, specific, I think they're, right? They're very topical. Designing for email, effective copywriting, emotional design elements. How long is the client one? How many pages? I don't know. Probably like 50. Does it not say? I think it's more like a glorified article. Legacy of typography. Marketing secrets for web designers. Navigation and interaction. Navigation and interaction, volume two. See, so navigation and interaction are actually surprisingly in-depth enough topics that you could write two books about them. All right, let's see. The navigation and interaction book is 131 pages. Wow. That's pretty robust. They are really on top of it. I think that sounds good. I would, I would like to check that out. Psychology of web design. Of navigation. Rethinking UX. I mean, when you get into the real nitty-gritty details of doing user experience design, when you start thinking about things like navigation, you can get really into the weeds on that stuff, right? Like, Greg, have you ever heard of the difference between F-type scanning and Z-type scanning on a web page? No, that is something I have never heard of. So F-type scanning and Z-type scanning refer to the patterns that people's eyes follow across a page as they look on the page, right? So the reason why you always have a nav bar at the top is because when people first hit a website that they've never seen before, they typically will scan left to right across the top of the page first. And the difference between F-type and Z-type uh, talks about where their eyes go next after that. So Z-type, you're going across the top left to right, and then you go diagonally top right to bottom left. And at some point in that diagonal path, you then maybe find a line or a headline or a word or something, and then you start reading left to right again, straight across. So that's a Z-type scan. F-type scan is, again, same starting point, top of the page, left to right. But then what happens is you go back all the way to the left, and you start going down the left side of the page. And then, again, you find something that catches your eye and start going left to right. So it forms like an F, sort of. So this is important because you have to understand how people are going to look at your site or you're going to have to design your site specifically around F-type or Z-type scanning. What if people do both? Well, some people do both. It really depends. You can actually build your site in a way that encourages one over the other, right? So if you've ever seen, like you start with your top nav bar going across the top, left to right. And then in your main banner image, if the text and your call to action, whatever, if that stuff is on the right side, I'm, sh I'm showing Greg here, like in there, if that stuff is on the right side, that is designed to encourage a Z-type scan because your eye naturally goes from, okay, I'm at the end of the nav. The next step is down and diagonal away from that top right corner. So then you naturally are encouraging a Z-type. You know who's a Z-type? Who's a Z-type? Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook in a while, so I'm assuming that's true. Yeah, Z-type scan. So mm -hmm. see how they have the create an account call to action on the right-hand side? Yeah. Yep. So how do I put my login bar on the right side of the page? With CSS, I think. How? How? How do you do that? I mean, you're the you're the full stack dev here, right? Are you going to teach us how to do that? It's it's going to be so. 
this is the thing about CSS is that there's no like one way to do things. So it's always just kind of a combination of pulling different levers on different things. Like going back to your example on your uh, login bars, if you're pushing those over to the right, you're probably going to have like maybe a float right in there. You're probably going to have some margin, you're going to do a little margin dance in there. You're going to have to do a little padding dance in there. You'll probably need to vertically align it so it's centered vertically. There's all kinds of stuff. So it's very dependent and it's not a programming language that is really designed to say, work. hey, do this and do to that. To work? To work. Look at this. CSS tricks is an F. CSS tricks is an F, yeah. Fs are... Uh, Fs are fun. Fs are good for any page that has lists. So if you have like a long list of stuff like a, like a SoundCloud or Spotify or something where your first page has a long list of things, then that's where your F type, that encourages an F type scan. So like if you go to the public function show on iTunes or something like that, you'll have a nice, you'll have a left side sidebar. You'll have the list of episodes in the middle and you're reading left to right. So that's an F type scan. So that setup is set up for an F type scan. And your call to action, like your subscribe button, I think is in the top left. Yeah, that's how deep this UX stuff goes, guys. It's not just wireframes. So, you know, if you look at a public functions on the iTunes preview, you switch back and forth between saying this week Albert and at L Park. A couple episodes you did Twitter handles. Yeah, so I tried that. And the thing that automatically pushes our tweets whenever we publish a show doesn't like Markdown for some reason. So that one, oh no, I didn't go back and fix it, but it's fine. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Tisk, tisk, tisk. iTunes is actually interesting because it sorts them where there's a number one, which was the most recent episode, except for this one, is on the top. So it says 1008 data jujitsu. And then nine, everyone hates Linux. That but you also forgot. You also forgot the zero 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 colon. Everyone hates Linux. That doesn't make. I'm any sense. I'm queuing your page right now. I don't, doesn't make any sense, man. It all comes from the same RSS feed. What are you doing, iTunes? What's the RSS feed? It's public function dot fireside dot fm backslash RSS. The JSON one is backslash JSON instead of RSS. Oh yeah. Listen, you can go take a look at that stuff too. I don't you can like look at it. I don't like RSS. Ooh, this is better. But the JSON feed doesn't have as many of the data pieces as the RSS does. Like our, yeah, uh, that's the episode art. The episode specific cover art is not in the JSON feed, and there's some other stuff that's in there. But yeah, your your content text is zero zero zero. Everyone hates. Oh no, the title is everyone hates Linux. There's no zero zero zero. You screwed up. QA fail. I, I I don't think that's true. There's a thing in the CMS that formats everything. I don't care. I don't. You don't care, care that the JSON is wrong. What color is that? It's the you best <laughs> color. You have a syntax highlighting for your in-browser JSON format. Yeah. Do you know how much I look at this? You know when you actually deal with data, you I need mean, to I do too. Like, format I have, it. Uh, JSON, like I have the Chrome extension that formats no, this the JSON is, so it's readable, but it's still just white background with the normal text. So I know that I'm looking at a JSON endpoint in the browser. If I had a syntax highlighted the same way I have my code highlighted, it'd be weird. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It, it wouldn't be 
the context switch wouldn't register in my brain. It's called JSON viewer. I don't I don't feel the need to 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 syntax highlight it though. Well, this is why you don't do backend. So front end people don't ever have to look at uh Well apparently JSON not. Feeds? You don't you don't highlight the colors of your browser view. Come on. Come on. I mean it's just data. Like I'm not actually in there typing if I was actually in there like typing up the text, then that's one thing. But if I'm just reading the data, I don't really care. White background, dark text. Wrong. Anyways, so what's the topic? We're talking about CSS today, right? This is why we were going down this UX No, I know, but you usually you say, we're talking about CSS today. Today the on the public function show, we are talking cascading style sheets. What are some of the other like radio show effects that you've heard? Like, I don't know. I, I don't listen to podcasts with radio. But like old school effects. radio. I don't, I'm not that old. Like, like uh, morning shows and stuff like I that. I don't. Do morning shows. Oh, that was like a thing. Or TV. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Such a millennial. So I like the F and Z shape stuff. That's, That's more cool. UX and, than CSS. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's related. Aren't these things related? They are related because you use CSS to essentially execute some of the findings that UX comes up with. UX to me was always more of a, a research thing. Like, hey, this is a visually pleasing way to organize all your stuff on this page. Right, because without the CSS and without the UX, then it's just it's just text, man. It's just what HTML was always supposed to be—just a page of text that anybody can look at. White text, no, not white. Black text, white background. Greg, how do you feel about that? I don't know. Your your Chrome extension that allows you to syntax highlight in browser is probably using some CSS to do that. Probably. I mean, yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. You know. There's so much stuff on the internet. If I could just read everything on CSS tricks, I would know so many things. You would know a lot. CSS tricks is a good one because I still, to this day, go back to the original Flexbox guide on CSS tricks every time I'm doing Flexbox stuff. Every time I'm writing CSS. I usually just have it open. Like I'll just have it up because I won't remember what the difference between aligned items and aligned content is or something like that. What's Flexbox? Flexbox is a I'm new thing. I'm just kidding. Thing. I know what Flexbox you, is. You actually do know what Flexbox is, which is actually very impressive. So tell me why I should know what Flexbox is. Flexbox just makes your life easier. It's essentially a lot of the grid-ish kind of things that CSS frameworks like Bootstrap and Foundation were trying to solve years ago. I would say 10 years ago now. Because the original CSS spec, like CSS, I guess, 2, didn't really have those things built in. So you had to build these repetitive classes of like margin this and padding that and da-da-da-da-da-da to do the same things over and over, like vertically centering a div, horizontally centering a div, evenly spacing three equally sized divs in a row from left to right across the page on your F-type scan. Stuff like that. Stuff like stuff like that were things that web developers and front-end developers were doing over and over and over. And so they needed things like Bootstrap to do that for them to make it easier. But now, all these years later, Flexbox is part of the CSS spec. And so it's already in there and does everything. And it helps out quite a bit. Hmm. What, seems... what, is, what is your experience with Flexbox been like? 
Because you're not someone who writes a ton of CSS, but I feel like you know enough to be dangerous. Uh, I pretty much only use CSS when I have to like hand off something that sort of works to someone. And it has to be like not great, but like sort of designed. The last project that I actually did CSS on, I just used Bootstrap. And then there was another project that I started, didn't finish, that used Bulma. And I really liked Bulma. You're like Bulma? What mm-hmm. did you like about Bulma? It just, it wasn't like, I don't like the parts of uh, Bootstrap that are just JavaScript based because I feel like they're just, they're either not needed or especially with React, you can integrate or implement like modals and things differently or accordions or whatever. And adding all that stuff to the framework, CSS framework, just seems like an extraneous thing when all you really want to do is style it. And then Bulma is like such a such a elemental thing. Like it has the some of the same stuff in styling that Bootstrap would have, but then it's just like basically if you go down their list of things, they have columns, layout, form, elements, and then components. But then components are not what they're kind of what you would think they would be from Bootstrap, but they're things like a breadcrumb, card, dropdown, menu, message, modal, navbar, pagination, panel, tabs, but none of them have JavaScript. So it's all CSS based. So are are they animated? Uh, I think if they have, let me check. I think if you can they, still have animations without JavaScript. Yeah, they just do. Uh, yeah, they're sort of animated. Like a hovers are animated, and, and yeah, I mean, but they they leave most of the animation and like the ability to close a modal, they'll just say like, well, hook in your JavaScript to close it. Because they know that you're probably going to put it in Bootstrap, like in, sorry, in like React or something. So you don't really, you don't really need the close. Actually, the close does work, which is pure, pure JavaScript. And they have a ton of variables that you can use to define it, which correlate really well to props. So if you look at like React Bulma, all they've done is they've taken all of those properties and made them into property, or all those config values and made them into properties. So it's just like it makes this really nice and clean uh, integration. But I think once you deal with like uh, React Bulma or anything like that, they've actually wrote the JavaScript for the components. So yeah, like I've whoever, used, whoever manages yeah. uh, the React versions of these frameworks typically has built out all these things in the pattern that you described, right? I know yeah. React Bootstrap is set up in a similar way. React Strap. There are yeah. two different versions of freaking the React version of Bootstrap, which is crazy. Yeah, I remember dealing with this. So like React Bulma components, you in a, you import each component and then each CSS separately. So you can be like import tilde React Bulma components source index, and then you can override styles. But then when you go into like your components, so that would be like on your main wrapper in React, and then on the individual components, you'd import like React Bulma components lib components button. But it's like you're you're in, in, uh, importing these very elemental things. So the setup was like really really simple, and then you have all these components that you may or may not use. So I don't know. It's pretty pretty neat, and like they have this level component, which is basically just a horizontal bar. That's a flex container. And then you can say like space between or vertical center or whatever, whatever the terms are. There's a lot of them. All those things are, are properties. 
So you can create like a level and you can say that it's inside of that there's a level left or a level right or a level item which would be in the middle. So they've basically like they've basically made it so that you can center and then have things on the outside of it by using like level center, level right, level left would or would be three things that are on left, right and center of a level. But you could also just do that with just straight um Flexbox. You can do it with straight Flexbox, yeah. But I mean they give you this ability. I mean their example is like uh like a tweets following followers likes component is their example in their code. Oh, like the one header of, on a Twitter page or something like that? Like one of those oh, yeah. little doohickeys. So you can either just like center your stuff gridless style without actually, def- like it doesn't define a grid. Right, because those items, those four items are probably variable widths. They're probably not all the same width, but you still yeah. need to center them. Like they have responsive columns, but they're just literally called column. So if you put a column inside of a columns, then they get like an equal width. So there's space between or whatever, flex space yeah. between by default, but that's literally the only grid they define. Yeah, the grid the grid concept is not something that's unique to Bootstrap, but it is something that is very commonly used in web development. So and it's a pattern that you follow quite often. Tell me how you feel about grids. Oh my God. Need grids, guys. Just use the grids. Well, there's a there's a there's CSS grid now, so there's or there are actually grid things that are built into the CSS spec. I have not had a chance to play around with CSS grid that much, but I have used Flexbox quite a bit, and you can kind of replicate a lot of the grid systems that you need from a thing like a Bootstrap in just straight Flexbox, so it speeds things up a little bit. Yeah, and then the other thing is you don't when. Like a designer tells you, hey, I want you to use this grid. Let's just say, for the sake of this internal funny joke, that this grid works. So it's not like just pink bars on something that aren't correct. Right? And he's nodding his head. He's got a lot of pain here. So let's just imagine that the grid actually works. Half the time, if the designer is being creative, they're going to say, well, I want this one thing to not be in this box. Yeah, you can't do that. Well, you can't do it with a grid, but you can do it with flex. Because every single well, horizontal... You, well, you so could do goes, it with a grid, but you have to then do like vertical, uh, or not vertical, like padding offsets, and it just gets stupid. It's a one-off, which is antithetical to the purpose of the grid. So yeah. you, you touch on a good thing here because one of the things that is good about grid systems is the idea that it is a non-coding development concept that should be easily communicable to designers and people who are responsible for coming up with web designs, right? Hey, align everything this certain way. Center things this certain way. If you have three of the three items in this row, they all are centered in the same way. That concept should not be a, oh, that's too technical. Oh, that's a front-end developer thing. That should be a universal, anybody who builds things for the web should understand how that concept works. If you don't have a clear understanding between your designer and your developers on even what a grid is or how it works or why you should use it, then you're going to have problems. You and I have both been in this situation where we've worked with designers and developers, well, not developers, but designers at least, who maybe don't have the greatest grasp on how the how and why of a grid, and it causes a lot of pain. Yeah, but I mean, with with having 
uh, <laughs> hold on a sec. With having Flexbox, you don't really need a grid. You can make every single horizontal column a one-off. Yeah, you can one-off every row yeah. with Flexbox. So as long as they understand that this row is going to be however you tell me to make this row work, then the next row can be completely different. That's true, yeah. So you can go, like with Bootstrap, one of the big problems with Bootstrap 3 is if you chose to make your website, say you're like new to see, to Bootstrap. So if you go to Bootstrap 3 and you look at the types of containers and you make the container uh, fixed, not fixed, what's the one where it has the paddings on either side? This is a regular container. Okay, so you use a regular container as your first container in your entire app. You're stuck with the percent margins on the sides. For every row that For comes in every that container. row inside, which we had one time on a project, someone was designing a news type site and they used the standard container for the whole site. And then in that, they would put more rows with more containers. But the problem was every single, you couldn't break out of the 80% width container to go back to a full bleed component. So they basically did it backwards. Yeah, those should be different containers. Yeah, and but they, that's a simple. Well, the, the the parent you should also be, need to design around that is the thing. Well, the the parent container should be fluid. It should be full width. The parent should be fluid. And then in that you'll make a row, typically like the header would be another full width, like the masthead image would be another full width image or full width container, and then the next row down might be a percent one. So if you look at Bootstrap's page. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. The top bar is fluid. The next bar down, the next row down is fluid. And then the one below that is contained. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. But if you give Bootstrap to like a young developer, they might make the mistake of using the regular container and then start design. Because most websites, if you get them as comps, like they, there won't be such a clear delineation that it's not, it's not a, a, an 80% width site. So like in this particular case, I mean, we're looking at this visually, but the blue bar goes the full width. But if yeah, that but blue it's bar- It's a completely separate container from the rest of the site. Yeah, so no, I know. They, they basically made this top bar up here a fluid container. Two, one fluid container with two rows or two fluid containers with two rows, row each. Whichever one they did. And then they have another row with a fluid container. But then inside of that, it actually has an 80% width. Yeah, so which you can do because it's turtles all the way down. It's that's turtles, idea, but, but like that's the kind of that's the kind of thing. And then the whole th the whole argument with Bootstrap three life, like for the ten years that this was the legit thing to use, is that all Bootstrap sites look the same. They always had the same kind of grids. They always had the same percentages, the same columns. They had twelve columns, eighty percent width, or full bleed with twelve columns, and there wasn't like the ability to be like, oh, I want a 24 column grid. I mean, you can with Bootstrap. You can, can. define the columns, but you're not going to start with a 24 column grid and then switch to 12 and then break it back out to 24. The whole thing that's so great about Flex is that you can just take every row as a unique and delicate flower. Yeah, and it figures it out. Like if you have seven elements, yeah, it'll, just, it'll seven. just figure it out. So you can like contain one. You can create a regular row that's full width. And then inside of that, you can put a container that's 80%. And then inside of that, you can put another row. And then in that, you can say, this container is flex space between, you put four things in it. Yeah. Like it's then, so flexible. It's very flexible. Which is cool.
it's nice. It and then, does solve a lot of problems. Yeah, it's pretty neat. And then you like look at uh, CSS Grid and you start to see like there's this one uh, link somewhere where uh, somebody basically created a bunch of examples with CSS Grid and like one of them is a ticket to Hogwarts and it has like some stuff that's horizontal and then on the other side there's a dividing bar and then it's vertical. So it's like a legit ticket, like a train ticket. Oh. But designed in CSS, fully fluid. You, you resize the page, the ticket stays the same size. It's like perfectly contained. But it doesn't run on IE, which is always fun. Oh, that's okay. Microsoft's going to solve that problem for us very shortly here. So it's well, fine. are they? I've heard I mean, it refer. I've heard this new project referred to as Edgium, which is cute. <laughs> that's cute. But the problem with that is like you you still when you're designing for a client you have to go for the lowest common denominator and like Flexbox has some problems, but it is way better than using a grid. Which is why if you look at Bootstrap four, it's all it does still have the traditional columns that are the grid that you can use, but the grid is built out of Flexbox. So you can either use it or not use it. But that's where when I was looking at Bootstrap 4 originally, when I, I don't know, they may have changed it. It might be better. But when I was looking at it originally, it felt like it was trying to live in both worlds, in the grid world with 12 columns. And then also you could have these fluid flex containers that would be, and they were trying to like overload the containers to be like, oh, this one's flex between or space between or whatever, or the oh, line yeah, items yeah. end or what do you think? They tried to add these pseudo classes to things. And you're like, just leave the flex alone. Just like use Flexbox. But they tried to like help with it. Yeah, I, I think that you're going to have a bad time if you try to mash Bootstrap and Flex, like your own one-off Flexbox together too much. Um, if, if you're going to go with Bootstrap, if you're going to make that decision, you really should just go, okay, we're going to do it the Bootstrap way and kind of make our website look kind of bootstrappy, which is fine. I know... I mean, yeah, you looks, were saying that it looks better on Bootstrap Four. It's not as bootstrappy because you look at the website itself, and it it doesn't look like an eighty percent width, twelve column situation. Yeah, and that's that's that is my response to what you were saying about people's criticism. Of bootstrap initially is that everything looks very bootstrappy. It's like, well, do a better job of designing. Like, Bootstrap <laughs> does not make uh, using Bootstrap <laughs> does not make websites look bootstrappy. It's if you design it, something. If you use bootstrap in a way that looks bootstrapping, that's going to look bootstrappy. But you can build things that don't look bootstrappy the bootstrap way and make everybody happy. Right? The thing I think that the thing that always gave away bootstrap sites to me were the button stylings. So the colors, like the very specific shades of yellow and blue and Yeah, those are easy to change. Red, those are easy to change. The uh, button radi radiuses, radii. Radii. That that and the colors were always a dead giveaway to me. So if you just go as far as changing the button colors and then changing back to square or something like that, you can really take away a lot of that bootstrappiness. If you just don't use Jumbotron, that'll take away some of the bootstrappiness. If you change the font to something else, it'll take away some of the bootstrappiness. If you style that hamburger menu drop down to something else, there are a lot of ways to, like a lot of little small tweaks that, a good front end developer will be able to make to make a bootstrap site look less bootstrappy. But I mean, the thing is, Bootstrap 4 is way more amazing. Like, that does not look like Bootstrap. He's looking at a picture of a dashboard. Yeah, what page is this? That's this like is a theme. Just the theme, one of the themes it's like they a dashboard sell. theme, yeah. But it looks really good. Yeah, that's because And it literally, flex. all they did was it looks like it just changed some fonts, changed some padding around some of the grids. Because, like, all those grids are very standard 
those are very bog standard uh, bootstrap grid layouts. And like your nav bar on the left-hand side here, you just have some padding around it. So it looks a little bit different. But other than that, it looks fantastic. And those are very small changes. Well, yeah, my point is I don't think that this is, this is not like, yeah, the grids are uniform, but it's not like a traditional, this doesn't look like a traditional bootstrap page to me at least. And I think Bootstrap 4 is better, but what I'm getting at is that Bootstrap 4 um it 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 uses the better it uses better technology because it's all based on Flex, but I think the last time I used it, it was still fairly complicated because Bootstrap is trying to handle like it, at least when I used 4 the first time, it was trying to live in the old and the new at the same time. And I feel like that complex made it complicated. But I think that, I mean, I was looking at it when it was beta. So maybe it's gotten better and maybe they've kind of um, separated that out a little bit. Um, but I've always felt that it's a little bit too verbose. But I do I do like Bootstrap. But um, I do agree with a lot of people that before, at least with Bootstrap 3, you ended up with a lot of pages that look the same. So, I mean, 4 is better. But looking at things like Bulma... Uh, Bulma doesn't really, it doesn't define these kind, like this kind of like overarching way that you do things. It's just kind of, it's just kind of there and it's more semantic. So like things are not like column, you know, L large or column L, uh, what are the classes? There was like MD4 and MD5 and stuff in Bootstrap 3. Oh yeah, so all that sizing the, the stuff. column sizing, yeah. Yeah, like that stuff is not really there. It's more like, you define in your config how large the columns are percent-wise, and then they're just that. And then within a certain column, you can override them, and you can just say, like, you know, this column is a different size, or whatever. So I don't know. Like, if you look at, if you look at the markup, it's like div class column is mobile. So is mobile, is desktop are the differences between the sizing, which is more, arguably, Bootstrap has more... Uh, Abilities because it has XS. It used to have XS, SM, MD, and LG. Yeah, so it actually does four mobile first now. So it starts off at XS. Yeah. So you can define small, medium, and large on top of that. But I think going back to your previous point about how reactifying all the things kind of changes the math a little bit around that. The, the same thing goes with Bootstrap, right? You don't have this super gigantic long chain of class names anymore. You just have props. Yeah, and the so, props are much more semantic. Yeah, like so column. you have like small, and yeah. then you put in an integer. Mm -hmm. Medium, you put in SM2. a different integer. Yeah, and it's actually parsing that, uh, either parsing or applying that class and then picking that CSS. Yeah, and it, it is a lot more semantic as well. I think it's easier to read. So like your your component name is call for column, and then you have a list of props underneath it. So you'll have a prop for SM, You'll have a prop for MD. You'll have a prop for LG, right? And each one of those takes a integer for your column for your column size on your breakpoints. And then you can pass things like text center, or uh, you can pass offsets. You can pass all this, all this, all the classes that we know and love from Bootstrap. You can actually pass those as props. So I think that React makes it a little bit easier when you're using Bootstrap. But even like looking at it, even now it's still so like you look at just defining a three column thing. It says div class container, div class row, div class call small, 
And then they have other classes like call-lg-xl. So it's nice that they do have, it starts mobile, which is extra small with no naming, just call. And then you have small, medium, large, extra large. So it has the four breakpoints, which is neat. But then they'll have like call MX and a line right and like all this, just so, all these yeah, things. Yeah, so those are the kind of the little helper things. I yeah, think but MX they, might be the offset. Yeah, but they try, what I'm getting at is they try to like define a lot of CSS for you by doing like call MD auto. And you're like, okay. But if you look at Bulma, it's literally just column. Well, a lot of the stuff in Bootstrap is built that way because web developers were writing those classes. Like those were things that developers were already doing. And so that's why those utilities are building. They're like, like a, there's a class uh, called text center, which just does text align center on everything within the container, which is something that you, you're always doing. So it's just built in there as a helper. It's yeah, very but simple. But, I think, and then the thing like offsets mm -hmm. and the align left, align right were things that you were already doing anyway. So again, same thing. Yeah, but I think the the argument to play devil's advocate that I've heard from a lot of people that don't like Bootstrap is that you're you're essentially defining all of these styles in the markup. So you're saying like I'm going to use this predefined class like align right or align left, but then what ends up happening in in my personal experience with using it is sometimes the align right doesn't work if it's inside of like a certain component at if a it's certain not level. Right, yeah, yeah. If it's not nested right and it becomes this like also, if you were to, like, let's just imagine that you added Bootstrap to, you started a project in Bootstrap. What is the likelihood that you're going to remove Bootstrap? If you needed to, like, Probably really... Probably not, like, not ever. Yeah, what if you needed to, what if it was, like, a big brand website and you needed to just diverge from, just imagine a There's big no brand... There's no way that you'd ever be able to divert away from Bootstrap in that situation, yeah, ever. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my... Without the entire site. That's kind of my point. So the less stuff that you have written in the markup, the better. The less classes you have written in the markup, the better, in my opinion. I mean, to be realistic, you're probably not going to start with like React Bulma components and then remove it. Once the site's built with it, you're rebuilding it to remove it. It's always going to be a combination of the stuff that your chosen framework gives you out of the box and then some... Uh, Additional CSS classes on top of that to like, yeah, adjust. fix the little wiggly things mm -hmm. on the side or like uh, make small adjustments. But the alternative to that, to something that is as structured as Bootstrap with as much of the stuff it has in the markup, is that if you were to write all of that, all of the Bootstrap CSS yourself, you are going to run into the same problems where you everything has to be like nested a very certain way and then your selectors have to do a very certain thing and then you have to make sure that you're not breaking this thing over here. The, the reason why a lot of that stuff gets moved into markup is that the patterns necessary to maintain all of that in just straight pure CSS, those patterns are very brittle and very easy to mess up, especially when you're making changes we have we both have firsthand experience with this because we've worked on projects that have these very large, not well maintained CSS code bases, and that um, things aren't organized correctly. You've got stuff that's global that shouldn't be, and like you have to do a lot of checking to make sure that if I write this class over here, am I going to break this other thing over here? Or if I change this class over here, am I going to 
you know, have to do some sort of override on other parts of the page. And so it's very easy to get to that point with the CSS if you were going to not write as much styling in your markup like a bootstrap would. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think the thing that the one of the things that I found problematic with with Bootstrap because we're kind of on this little discussion of the the pros and cons of it is that you end up building it a certain way. You build the whole site with like I wrote an entire internal application for my company with Bootstrap and it has maybe a hundred lines of CSS. Oh, but Greg, it looks too much like a bootstrap site, though. Uh, it looks too bootstrappy. No, that's dumb. Well, it's an internal site, so who? Can, I mean, it's literally it looks, using. I know what project you're talking about. Yeah. It looks, it looks great. Yeah, but that it uses fine. it uses Bootstrap. What does it use? I think it uses Bootstrap for beta, but it was built very similar to the way that Bootstrap three would be because at that time I didn't know how to do that. So it's using a lot of like the standard bootstrap classes, like literally the standard bootstrap table. Like the buttons. The buttons. The table, yeah, the table. The buttons I actually changed the colors on. It was like the tables and the paginator and the forms and things like that were all just standard. The Jumbotron, like that when I re no, when I rebuilt it actually uh in Bootstrap 4, it became less bootstrap looking. I remember the particular team that was using it was like, wow, it looks so much more modern. Did you change the font? I don't think I no. I don't deal with fonts. You don't do fonts. I mean, I've I have enough trouble just making them exist in the webpack life and get put on the server and have the right content type. Again, and they, they can be pretty difficult, and they're a pain in the ass. The projects that we've dealt with have have not have typically not been web fonts either. So it's like yeah. somebody's handing you a TIFF or a folder full of stuff. They're like, here's the fonts. Yeah, here's the font. They don't that we actually paid. know if <laughs> we the paid. correct files yeah. or. They spent two million dollars on the font. Like, yeah, and that doesn't have a web font. They paid two hundred fifty bucks for the font. It doesn't have a web font. No, You're like, come on, it's guys. It's or it's on, for you know, fonts. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, either way, what I'm getting at is like the the amount of see, like when we start to get into talking about like CSS and JS and React, part of the thing that I see that's a problem with using. Uh, bootstrap like things is that it, it really if you don't use a library that translates bootstrap to react really well through props and things like that you end up with a lot of your styling happening on well with bootstrap it would happen on props you would define yeah. a lot of it with props now the problem is like imagine a world in which you were combining the props of bootstrap like react strap or uh, you know any of the the Bootstrap React libraries. React Strap is probably the most popular one, I think. I don't know. I think React Bootstrap might be up there. I think React Bootstrap is. I think React Strap was first, but then React Bootstrap. Has Which is the more. one that has the rocket in their logo? That's React Bootstrap. I, don't I think know. that's React Bootstrap. <laughs> Either way, um, you end up like combining a lot of properties. And then on top of that, say you want to use CSS modules and you want to add all of your own custom style in CSS modules for reasons that we'll explain when we talk about the difference between CSS modules and style components. But you want to put a lot of the styles in CSS modules. Then you're kind of combining this. Some of the styling comes from properties and some of the styling comes from a class that's applied from a CSS module. And then you have to start using important to override the styles that are inside of the markup or the props. That's true but you shouldn't really have that many of those right you shouldn't have oh uh, you end up with a lot well 
Nishka Barrett CSS. No, like if what I'm saying is if because of the order at which React apply styles, it takes the preference of the things that come from props over the classes that are applied at the top level, or it's the other way around. But either way, you get collisions. Yeah, you I, get I, collisions, I and then you have to do important, and then and maybe they've changed this. I don't know, but. Um, I think a lot of them, so like if you were to fundamentally build like a React component and you were not using Bootstrap, say you were just like styling it, you could either in the component that you're building, say you're building like a button, you could create a class called button or a functional component called button that just returns some markup. And then one of the props to it could either be a bunch of properties defining rules that you've built in your component or it could just be a class that you pass through and apply as class name. So you're just passing through a class. You pass through like a string? Like a string, yeah. And then it knows internally, well, this is this class. So usually what people will do when they build a component out of like these properties for styles, they'll make things like is fluid would be a Boolean. And then when is fluid is there, internally to the button class, there's like, if you've ever looked at like the source code of one of these libraries for these all-in-one components, they're just breaking off props and applying them as classes. Because fundamentally, at the lowest level, it's either going to be style components in the component or it's going to be just straight CSS or CSS modules. But the big, big, big problem with React styling is what happens if the application wants to define from JavaScript a variable that gets passed to the CSS. That's a problem because, say, the height of the component is variable and defined as a prop, you can't make that height part of a class that's in CSS, just straight CSS, ignore CSS modules or style components. You can't pass properties from a component from the JavaScript to the CSS library. See, well, the CSS itself, if you just import just straight CSS. It has to become a style, an inline style. You can eat, yeah, okay, so there's a couple ways to do this as me, the front-end person, has had to deal with this on several occasions. So you either pass this as inline style or if you know what that value is going to end up being, you write a class for yeah. that value. And you switch the classes. It's a hack, it's gross. Like you, yeah. you, end up having ha you end up having classes that are like the word six. Yeah. Or the word... Or is um, large or is whatever. Large, stuff like that. And yeah. it's kind of gross. The, and then the inline style is not much better, but I think it's easier to read and I think it's a little bit more logically consistent. But the thing is, if you're building a library that defines a button, the most uh, a, the most logical way to the the least the way to do it with the least included libraries is to define a bunch of classes, pop off the booleans. And then use like class names, which is a very small library that lets you pass an object of classes where true defines if the class is applied or false means right. it's not. So it's funny because we're talking about CSS and the joke is that I don't know anything about CSS, which is true. It's but I true. do this know quite... Kind of the point. <laughs> no, no. I know quite a lot about how to make React style things. And I know, you know quite you a know lot about... I do functional programming. So... Yeah. It, but it, <laughs> in now in... The year of our Lord 2019, functional programming is now CSS. Yeah, so we're going to get there. It's the grand convergence yeah. of things, the singularity. We're going to get to the singularity. But the, the interesting thing is, is that you, if you want to build it with the least amount of, uh, like the least amount of code that's required or 
You don't want like your little component to require all of style com- style components or CSS modules or any kind of like build system. It doesn't need like its own Webpack file, right? You're just going to include CSS. You're just going to say import CSS from blah in your component. And then when it gets compiled by the person's parent Webpack, it's probably, if it's create React app, it's going to understand that that's a CSS file, run it through a CSS processor and put it on the page, right? Like it'll work. But if you start to make like your little button component include style components, then your button component becomes so much bigger. Granted, when it gets built, you're probably going to pre-compile your component to CSS anyways, because your your like little component is going to have its own Webpack build that takes that CSS or that style components and converts it to CSS, whatever. But that'll get included, and it'll end up just being flat CSS. But the problem there is that the only way that you can apply different classes to that component is by switching booleans. So you say when the component starts, you say is grid gets popped into a an object is grid true or is flex true or is large whatever would be true, and then there's a library that's very very lightweight called C, uh, class names. People usually abbreviate it as CX in code if you've ever seen it. CX and then an object that will convert all of those classes to class names that are applied to the component. Where like it'll be like class name is grid will be applied. Because what it's returning to you is a string with all the classes, like a literal string, and then it passes that to class names. That's where the functional comes in, because class names itself is a function that you call, pass it an object, and all it's literally doing is returning a string with all the classes in a row. So it's like like probably like ten lines of code. Yeah, it's about as simple as you can get for doing that kind of heavy lifting of figuring out which class needs to get applied. Yeah, because otherwise you're like building a string yourself. Class plus equals this thing. Yeah, you're if doing this, a little plus string equals that, dance. Plus equals, and then you got to worry about the spaces between things, and you have to like be like plus equals space class, would or you, start using template would strings. You, would you consider that data jujitsu? Probably, it's, it's another form of data jujitsu. It's yeah. another form of data jujitsu, but it doesn't require so much like component did update and all that stuff. You you end up like defining all these classes that get passed into this component and then all it's really doing is applying a bunch of classes to it. But yeah, I don't know. Let's get let's get into style components versus CSS modules versus straight CSS and what that means in Webpack. Oh man. It's fun. It's That's fun a stuff. fun conversation. So <laughs> let me give you a little backside story. So going into, and you remember this story because you were there, going into this last project that we did at our company, your previous company, my company, we, my goal was to try to make it so that everybody who worked on this project previously was using Backbone and Less and jQuery, jQuery and all this stuff from, you know, it was built well. 20,000 like, years ago. Like five years ago. It was built pretty well. Like 1400 we, BC. We did the same thing on another project, except we used Marionette. So it was a little bit cleaner. Um, but you know, this site was just straight backbone, straight less, straight jQuery, whatever. So I, there, you have this team that's been working on this project for five years. As long as I've been there, seven years, eight years, they've been working on this particular project and I didn't want them to have to learn react the crazy state management system, the, the new way to author content in the new version of Adobe experience manager and also learn Style components. Style components, CSS and JS. Too much. It's just too many things. It turns out that between the time that we started the project and when we finished and launched this particular 
rebuild of this one part of the site, there was two other projects that most of the team learned React and were pretty damn good at React. So at like that point, I could have been like, yeah, I'll add style components because there's the complexity of like learning React is out of the way, mostly. You know, they were building components, it's fine. They can build buttons and whatever. You know, one of the guys is great at React and built a lot of stuff, but the other couple guys needed to learn it, so they learned it and et cetera. And at that point, when we were at that point in the project, I would have been like, you know, there's an, that level of complexity is solved. It's probably okay to add style components. But um, it's just a nice little interesting learning experience because even with CSS modules, you can't, without adding and removing classes, just like you do with CSS, you can't dynamically define properties that get passed to CSS. Because it's not, CSS uh, modules is not CSS and JS. It is just a way to get um, SAS-like features without having SAS. Yeah, but you can also use SAS on top of it, though. You can use SAS on top of it to make it a bit, have all the extra superpowers that SAS has. But by default, it has some of those core things. It has mix-ins, I believe, and it has... I think it has, it doesn't have like advanced functions, but it has like little, whatever they call it. It has like little, let me Google it so I know I'm not wrong. It ha, I think it has mix-ins. Um, That's interesting. And it has variables or it just has variables. Let me see. I think variables sounds about right. Variables for sure it has. But I think the main thing that I liked about the CSS module setup, because we used it a couple of times before the project that you're referring to. We used it for, I think, well, I used it for a project that I worked on that was React. Uh, the thing I liked the most about it was the paradigm of you have a component that's JS and then you have a CSS file specifically for that component. And mm-hmm. it scopes straight to it and there's nothing else going on. Yeah. And the CSS module pattern takes care of the scoping for you. So if you have a class button on our hypothetical button component, that class button ends up getting compiled to button QX402684.1 in the actual markup. And so if you use class button somewhere else, it's going to get a different hash and it's going to be scoped differently. So you you don't have to worry as much about your collisions and polluting your namespace across your project, which was a huge problem on the redesign that you're referring to. So... There's a huge problem on the original project. On the original thing. Yeah, um, if you do it on the new one, you're you're doing something wrong because it, it can use global CSS, but it uses CSS modules. So by default, any custom CSS that's applied to a component that's not part of the style guide is done in a module. So yeah. Right, so that's the other thing too is that modules give you the flexibility of being able to be very specific and very scoped to your components, but then also have things that are more global. Mm-hmm. So that pattern is really, really nice. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you're just writing just regular CSS, right? Yeah. These Any web developer who has built things in HTML and just straight CSS and J- straight JavaScript, if you hand them something that's built in CSS modules and say, hey, write all your CSS here, they're not going to have to learn anything new. They just write regular yeah. CSS like they normally do. So it'd be, that learning curve part of it is super straightforward and very simple. And those are the things that I like the most about CSS modules. Yeah, and the argument for using it on that project was that if you go to any of those CSS files, they're not, they were, they were just like styles.css or styles.module.css yeah. was the typical name. But those files looked, when you looked at them, 
functionally just looked like CSS. Yeah, it exactly. was just straight CSS. Yep. You, Sublime would highlight it. VS Code would yep. highlight it. Everything would highlight it correctly. So to go back to one second, you, one second ago, you can. They're not mixins. So the difference between mixins and SAS and what CSS modules does by default is that with mixins you can pass variables like functions. That's the um, thing that SAS does. What you can do with CSS modules by default is composition. So you can say like, I have a class name. I have a class called green where the color's green and the background's red in their example. And you can say other class name composes green. And then you change the background color to yellow. So it's green text, yellow background. Oh, which is super so, helpful on buttons. Yeah. Because hey. you you're essentially like overriding something. So you don't have to say like this, you start to get into BEM naming. So you don't have to be like, this is button underscore underscore red or button red. Like you can just compose it and say, this is a button, but it's also red. And now it's a red button. So it makes it very clean to like write this stuff. And getting back to like what I know about CSS, uh, I know like the best practices of naming classes and how it should look inside of React and like how CSS should be compiled, how it's uh, compiled and wet, like how to set it up in Webpack, like how to configure post CSS and SAS and <laughs> all these things. And like I know all of that stuff and I know how the classes should look and I understand how the React components should look. But then when you get into like what actual CSS you would write in each class name, that's where like my, I'm not a front end dev. Like I don't have the years of experience like dealing with Firefox bugs and like how to make this thing centered in IE and like how to do this and how to do these weird tricks and how to just like make something look right. Like that's where my knowledge falls through. But that's also like not, going back to like the conversation a couple of days ago about full stack devs, like I believe that everybody should know how to do everything, but to be actually be what they would call air quotes full stack. But I think that there's like two fringe areas on either side of the full stack that you can you either go one way or the other. Or you can go both, but you're never going to be good at both. And this is where I draw the line. So you have the website, which is in the middle. You have the data that's providing information or the thing that's rendering the markup, which would be the server side, the server, the back end, and air quotes as they would call it, is, is one side. So that's where you get the full stack would be back end, website, and then the other side is front end, right? So you have JavaScript, you have React, you have all these things, right? Going one step further from being a front end dev, you have the actual styles. You're just like a jujitsu writer of styling. Right, which is where you fall. Like you know how to write React and you know how to write CSS, right? But then on the other side of the backend side, you have DevOps. So you'll have like this five. What are we up to now? I think it's two on each side, five quadrants, five little lines on this on horizontal the diagram in the spectrum. In the middle, you have the website. Then you have backend DevOps, and then from the website going forward, you have front end like design, CSS, UX, all that kind of stuff. And I feel like the further you are on, not the ability to write JavaScript, because if you look at like an isomorphic app, the JavaScript side is the same language as the backend side if you're writing Express. It's just one of them, you're funneling data into components through props. On the backend, you're funneling data out of a database into an API to the front end, right? Yeah, JavaScript no longer delineates front end versus back end anymore because you would write an entire back end in JavaScript. Yeah. 
Now, like Node, there's certain things in Node that are nodey, like streams and things like that that you don't really have in the front end and like FS writing and file writing and all the things that are in Node. But the fundamental language, if you looked at like an Express app and you looked at a modern Babel-backed front end, you'd be like, they look very similar. Yeah, They're all classes, they're import-exporting. If you use Babel on the back end, it's import-exporting. I mean, no, the new versions of Node support import-export, but whatever. So like, they kind of look the same. But then as you go further into the stack of the front end and you start to really learn CSS, you start to run into this issue where you don't have the time to deal with DevOps. No. So there are two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. That's why like, I think that a lot of people will say that like the full stack term is kind of overblown because you're never going to find like this person who can set you up like a fully managed load balanced DNS balanced like secure SSL backed server infrastructure that can it's you're not never going to but you're not going to find someone who can excel at that write it with you know um infrastructure as code using like Chef or Puppet or Ansible or Terraform, any of those things, you're not probably not going to find a dev who can do that and then also make you the API, also build you the JavaScript front end, the React front end, and then also write you the CSS like to the extreme that a client would expect it to be. Yeah, like a finished product with CSS, yeah. yeah. That person is a unicorn. Yeah, I don't think that person exists. I don't think they exist in the way that if you're expected to be extremely good at the front end, it's going to be very hard to be extremely good at the back end too. Because if you go to a big company, you're divided into two teams, back end and front end. Yeah. But that's where I think like that, that delineation becomes problematic because in the middle of that, you have an application developer, someone who can probably write an express API, maybe not secure it or deploy it anywhere, but they can get, get it running in Docker. They can like set it up, it runs, right? Whatever, they can do all that. And then they can make that thing either connect to the front end, which is a separate app, or be the same thing if it's isomorphic and like uh, expresses rendering it or whatever. So there's like, you know, code schools will teach you how to live on both sides of that. Take Express, render your markup, then write the React components and style them. Boom, you have an app, right? Rails will kind of do the same thing. If you go back like 10, 15 years, it'll give you the full thing. Laravel will give you the full thing. But you know, the person who's making Laravel work really, really well is probably hosting it on, I think it's Envoy, it's like Laravel's own hosting service. Or they can maybe get it up on a uh, DigitalOcean droplet yeah, using like the PHP pre-build and they're like, cool, I put my code here, I point my Nginx server at this PHP app, FPM, blah, blah, whatever's running, right? Like they can do that, but they're not going to be like, okay, well, let's take that thing and then put it in a Kubernetes stack and run 47 instances of it backed by five databases and you know load balanced and all this stuff. Like they're two completely different worlds. Yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly about your spectrum. I think you've placed things very well. CSS and getting front end code, like the part that you actually see on the page, is sufficiently complex enough that it requires as much experience as something like your DevOps end of the spectrum. So I think it is extremely difficult and I think, quite frankly, unrealistic to think that one person is going to be able to encompass all of that. Yeah. Now, I, it is kind of a funny joke that we say that Greg does know CSS. You do know a little bit of CSS. I think that, that, that that's a different thing. But I think <laughs> that you're probably 
as close to a person who would be able to do all that stuff as I would expect to actually meet in real life. And to use like CSS is sufficiently complex. So that to me says that like if, if, if there are people out there who can do all the orchestration and do all the DevOps and architecting and securing, it's okay to not know all the names of the colors that are built in the CSS spec, or it's okay to not know the shorthand of the margin property or the padding property or the border property or how all the different things of Flexbox work. Like it, it CSS is a real programming language. It has its own quirks, the same that any other programming language does. And in order to get good at it, you have to be experienced in it just like anything else. And so listeners, don't let anybody tell you that CSS is not real programming. I would agree with that, yeah. CSS is hard. CSS is very hard. And especially, like, it's not like we're talking about, hey, you know, let's just make, you know, uh, this little blog look correct. Let's make this WordPress site look correct. We're talking, like, you're actually devising or building a CSS framework for a brand. So the brands, like, like, you take Airbnb, for instance. Like, they went through a period, like, I don't know, it was like five years ago, where they defined and built style guides and React components yep. for every component on their website and any of their disparate sites, any of their widgets they load on web pages. They like did an overhaul of their whole system. So yeah, they spent an entire component library that entire component all library. of the things that you would need. So there is nothing that there are no designs that are built from scratch anymore. It's, yeah. oh, this design requires a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, and a little bit from column C. It's like ordering Chinese buffet, right? You're not going back there to make a new general so chicken. You're just picking stuff that's already been defined and pre-built and yeah. there's already a recipe for it. And that's the level of complexity that I think that people misunderstand about CSS is that you have to be organized in a certain way uh, you have to build your components out in a certain way to make sure that you are organized enough and that your components are modular enough to where you can have a robust library like that that prevents you from reinventing the wheel every single time you need a new page on your site. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, what ends up happening is that if someone says you want something that comes from column A, column B, column Z, then that becomes a project. Like I need to build column Z component. Right. That becomes a project and then gets integrated into the fundamental grid, like component structure of yep. this website. And this concept that we're talking about, that is just one concept of how you can design components, is called atomic design. It's like a, a concept that like the atomic design is like the most extreme version of this, where like what is a button? A button is built up of an atom of text and an atom of a rounded corner and an atom of like this box, right? And you take everything down to these like really, really fundamental things and then you build it back up. So if you needed to build like a one-off Z component, even at that level, you're, you're taking pieces of other components like down to the button. You can say, you know what? And this particular brand or, or like we're building like a really big platform, right? In this particular platform, this page, you know what? It just needs square buttons, right? So even then, you're not building from scratch. You're taking the button and you're taking the round, the square box and the text and you're putting those together. Yeah, and you and have like them. certain things defined out for the text specifically and you have props specifically for that, mm -hmm. right? You've got probably a prop for the corners, whether they're rounded or squared, yeah. which is a huge deal. You probably have something for... Um, 
deciding between some sort of flat design versus some sort of skeuomorphic design, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Any sort of box shadow or hover behavior or all those things. All those things have to be propified in your design library. Well, they would even sometimes be componentized, and that's They're where like atomic, yeah. yeah. So, so sometimes you'll have completely separate buttons. Um, you, you might have sizes. Like, you might have a square box component, li literally written in React. Yeah, like a, like or, a or in CSS. Component. More yeah. likely, it would be a CSS, uh, like a style component component, which gets into like style components. But I want to hold that off for a second because that's it's interesting, but it's even crazier. But one of the things that I want to uh, tout, like a little mini uh, uh, sponsor, but yet not not sponsor, is that Smashing Mag has books on these concepts that are just really good. Really, 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 really good. And one of them is Atomic Design. Mm. I think that it might not be... I'm looking at their list of books and I don't see it in here, but I think that they were selling it with the Smashing Book 4 at one point in time. It's like a giveaway or something, right? It was like a giveaway if you bought the Smashing Design, but it's literally this book called Atomic Design and it is written by Brad Frost. And it talks all about this concept. So if you're like a nerd and you're like, I want to build from like the lowest level, the the everything that I'm building is a component that is reusable, you should read this book. Because I, I, to be honest, I haven't read the whole thing because I never have any time. I buy things to like, you know, make my brain smarter and then I never have time to want, read them. But it looks like a good book. Uh, I would recommend it. Um, the other one that they were selling, I think these two might have actually came together. It was Design Systems and Atomic Design. I think they came together. And then the Smashing Book 4 I, was separate. But they have really good stuff. They have like the Smashing Book 4, which is responsive web design. Uh, it's Smashing Book 5. Smash, uh, atomic, what is it? Responsive web design. Talks all about how to build a responsive website. And then they have another one called Form Design Patterns, which I love forms. Forms are... Oh. Forms are a thing... Forms are the worst. Forms are one of the most important pieces of a website because things that you would not think are forms are forms. Yep. Filtering is a form. Is a form. Searching boxes are forms. Everything is forms that yep. the user interacts with is a form. If you're logging in, it's a form. It's a form. Yeah. So forms are dope. Uh, I like forms. I've spent. No, you don't. Don't lie. I have a love hate relationship with forms because I probably spent, you know, at least three or four years of my professional life being a developer, just working on forms. I also have the same thing, except for the love part. Yeah, it's all hate. It's all hate. I love forms. Forms, forms are just extremely difficult because there not. are so many different things. If you've ever had to build a custom set of validations for a form, for form fields, you will know the pain that I am talking about. I it mean, is very jQuery very validator difficult. back in the day, you used to be able to use or really? define your, custom functions. No, I'm saying back in the day. Mm -hmm. You would use or define rules that you could re-import. You could be like, hey, basically they said every validator is a function and then you would do something with it. It was a regex function or it was a do some logic return a boolean and then if the boolean is false, it's invalid. True, it's valid. Like they had those kind of things back in the day, but even then you had to do things like, well, what if I needed to like dynamically validate a field? Then you have to dynamically add validators. Yeah, which like uh, makes required, it really, not required, uh, yeah. dependent validations. Um, it's crazy. Touch, non-touched, mm -hmm. like touch state, yeah, non-touch state, stuff I like love that. that. Dirty, dirty, non-dirty. Things, things angular. Yep. No, this, is, this has been something I have to deal with because I remember I had to build a form 
that was for a like a home insurance quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was Angular One days. That was hard. Angular One days time. were fun, but uh, you know you had to deal with the model, and like the model was actually was back in the form, and the markup didn't even matter. Well, even the markup <laughs> stuff, though, like you had to have, like you said, there were dependent fields. There were some of the fields were checkboxes where you could select multiples out of yeah. a segment. So it's a some of them were radios where you only multi drop down. Yeah. Multi drop down. You had custom ranges for certain things, mm-hmm. right? Like there were like. Nobody has a house from like before 1901, so this field can't be less than 1901 or something like that. But it has to be a hundred years behind, because like be when it goes to behind. 2015, it's got to be 1905. Yeah, like nobody has a house older, or nobody has a house worth worth more than I forget what the upper, upper limit was though, because like one of the fields was, um, what is the market value of the home that you're trying to insure? And so yeah. my first question is, what is the upper limit of this? And what is the lower limit? $12 million. We can't insure you. I'm sorry. The, I think the upper <laughs> limit, and this actually surprisingly was a different, difficult question to get answered. I think the upper limit that they put was $100 million because that's crazy. This particular insurance company, one, did not want to balance leads. Yeah. But two, also had kind of like a, hey, we're not really going to be able to insure a $150 million home. We could try to work with a hundred. Well, like try. Remember this? Like, Remember this from a couple weeks ago? Like Mr. Trump, we could try to do this uh, at Mar-a-Lago, but I don't. I'm not sure if we could. Do, we could do that. But yeah, so stuff like that are things that you have to think about when you're dealing with forms. It's so much fun. Yeah, but anyways, we're getting we're getting off the CSS topic. But yeah, um, forms are fun. Atomic design is interesting. the The interesting thing is like you have to you have to think about when you're defining or designing a CSS like component-based pattern for like a business, you have to think about all these things. And one of the hardest things that I found is that you don't you don't always like have the time or well, first of all, you don't have the time to think about how to build it as a component library. But you know as a good front end dev, you're like, I know I want to do this. Or the other thing you do is like just use Bulma and you're like, well, you're already halfway there. And then all you got to do is make your React components modular and componentize, which you're going to do anyways, because that's how React works. Um, And then you're like halfway there. But if you don't actually, if you're not that good at CSS or you're not quite there yet, your instinct would be to just write a bunch of style sheets and then hope it works out. And then maybe you do scope your classes or you maybe you do use CSS modules but what you're ending up doing is making a one-to-one relationship between a class and a component or a class and a component within a component. Because one thing you can't really do in CSS modules easily is nest. So everything kind of ends up becoming its own top-level class. A little bit. It, can it, a little becomes, bit. it becomes tricky because the if you're super loose with your selectors in your nesting, then mm. that stuff can actually escape the scoping. Yeah. Right. So if you have... Uh, so you have like a like button wrapper class that you have as like your top level class and then you just select like a span inside of there. That span is not scoped to your component. So that span is now going to jump out and, and grab global. every span on the page. And it, that can, that You're was a little tricky. That was a, a fun bad one time. Yeah. for me to figure out the first time I did that. Because it's like... And by fun, I mean not fun at all. That yeah. was hard. Well, you don't realize that because they're like, oh, well, if you add this as a class, you use CSS modules that's scoped, but it's like... No, if you if you then reference a div, yeah. it's going to break out of this. Well, yeah. it's not if it's within the class. If you say like 
dot button, and then in that you reference a div. It no, won't it escape. Does. No, it, it does. Oh, see, even I, I learned something. I've re- I've done this recently. Where mm. uh, like so the pattern that I've fallen into um, with our kind of Gatsby CSS modules SAS type of setup that we've used a lot is that I'll have my component, I'll have my module file that is a CSS file that is imported as a module into the component. And I'll always start off with uh, kind of like a wrapper class, right? So you know how you're in, uh, in your uh, component that you need to have kind of your mm-hmm. base, like the container, tag, the container-ish thing. I usually just put a, a class right there as my quote-unquote wrapper. And so uh, I can kind of target stuff from within that inside the CSS using nesting rather than writing a new class for every single thing. And so you'll have this wrapper class and you're like, oh, I can just nest stuff in here the same way that I see this tree in my in my JSX or whatever. You cannot get loose in there. You have to write new classes or you have to be super, super specific, right? You can't just kind of generally say like, oh, all P tags inside of this wrapper class. Like, no, you can't do that because then it'll, it'll, it'll jump out of the scope and it'll apply to every P tag on the page. And also conversely, if you have a global P tag, Styling mm-hmm. like a like a global no, like uh, part set, of the style guide. They say the P is this it'll way. Overwrite, yeah. yeah, it'll yeah. overwrite your your P tag. So I found out the that out the hard way because my assumption was, oh, I'm I'm nested inside of my scoped class. Shouldn't my nesting also mm-hmm. be scoped? No. Yeah, it's because you're no. like used to SAS and you're like, okay, well, once I define the top level class, everything inside of it is sco- is not scoped, but it's scoped to that top level class. Yeah, and, and it's not. Yeah. So I don't know, that, that's when it starts to be real fun. And this is interesting because going back to that project that we're in, in the middle of right now and we're, we're kind of coming towards the end of it and we added CSS module or styled components rather for certain components within this library, this project that already has CSS modules because when you get into authoring, certain components per this uh, particular requirement set, um, some components have to actually pass values down to the CSS. So either you have like to... authored values. Like 30 pixels padding authored. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's fun. So in these particular... This is particularly the masthead, which you're going to roll your eyes. The masthead. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to remember those. So like when a masthead is authored, they'll say like, oh, I want this particular masthead to have a 30 pixel padding between like the components or something, inner padding of 30 pixels or whatever. Yeah. But in order to get that 30... What if they make it 15 or 45 or 75 or 25 or whatever? In order to get that value into the computer, you have to actually create a class called padding 35, padding 25, every option that they would define. And then you would say like, okay, the padding is 35. That dynamically applies the class that I've already written in my module called padding 35. But if they add 25, there's no class. So that's what if where- What they do padding 24.6? 24.6 because they're like, well, I mean, it's just it's pixels. Just make it 24.6 or 24.6% or whatever. Like you have to pass that into it. So that is where I think if you're going to build anything new, you don't have to use style components, but that concept is the way to go. The disadvantage to it is a couple things. When you start to use seat style components, which by the way, style components... Uh, is a form of CSS and JS. So with React, if you look at some of the simplest React examples, they'll either do 
class name equals something, which will reference a global class. In the JSX. In the JSX. The other thing you can do directly in JSX with nothing is you can say style equals an object. And that object can have keys, which this on the project, this was the thing that I thought would really throw off devs that had never seen this, is that padding bottom isn't padding dash bottom. It's camel case. Padding capital B bottom. That's, oh, that is actually do, surprisingly a very big paradigm shift. Like that is, is a weird thing to look at because your entire my entire dev life, I see margin dash right all yeah. lowercase. And you've been doing it for 10 them. years or whatever. I've been doing it my entire career. Entire and the second career. that you see margin capital R right with no space and no, you're like, what the hell is that? That's yeah. wrong. That should be an error. Oh, wait, it's not? What? Yeah. Yep. It's, it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a big change. It's, it's, it adds a little bit to the learning curve, I think, to the CSS part um, when you have to do stuff like that. It just yeah. looks strange, man. It's it it's hard. That's kind of one of the reasons I I prefer. I'm part of house CSS modules. I guess you're part of house. I am becoming style house components. style components because this is the difference. So what I was just explaining is just straight JSX style tags. Those get converted to inline styles. So if you look at what web, this is one. We're gonna have another discussion about tooling. So I'm not gonna go too crazy on this. We've kind of alluded to it in all these different talks that I love tooling, but. Um, what that ends up doing is it ends up building into the Webpack bundle a dynamic addition of an inline style. It's not going to turn into CSS. It's going to be part of the JavaScript. And when the component renders, it's going to say, add a style tag to the actual Shadow DOM markup that is an inline style. So, so it runs the JavaScript that injects the style tag into the markup. Yeah, sort of. It does it in the shadow DOM. It doesn't do it in what you see in like if you look at view source, it wouldn't be there. Oh, okay. But it will because if you do view source on a non-server rendered React app, you're going to see nothing but yeah. a div root, just like you do with like Angular and Backbone and all these things. But if it was server rendered, what you would see is an inline style tag. So it'll say style equals quotes padding dash bottom colon twenty pixels. It'll have all the traditional traditional stuff, inline style inline that you stuff. Yeah. See. yeah. Now, the problem with inline styles is that if you also have a style sheet, inline styles supersede style sheets. So if you have a class, I'm pretty sure, yeah. you, don't quote me on no, this, but no, they, inline styles uh, supersede everything. Supersedes everything, yep. Yeah, so if you have, a inline, if you have an actual class called class uh, padding bottom 50 or whatever, it's going to ignore that and apply the 25 from the inline. So there's disadvantages to using one or the other in just straight JSX. So if you were to use a class and then have a style sheet included however you normally include, like literally include this style sheet, it'll apply the class, but it'll be overridden by the inline style. So in comes CSS modules first, which is the least uh, pervasive to your life, except for the fact that you have to understand, like we were saying earlier about scoping, that CSS modules rely on classes that get applied using the class name portion of React. And one of the reasons why I think the camel-cased uh, CSS objects are not that insane is because they already do that in React with properties. Class is not class in React, it's class name. And that's because it's an argument to React.createClass. That's class. literally the only one, though. No, there's all all of them. Every Well, yeah, the, the props like that, but JSX is like that. 
Yeah. Like the tag name is capitalized. Every single so JSX that. property that you would ever use is camel case. Most of them are lowercase, so you don't notice it. But I think but you can't use class. Class is the only one that is not the same. Because class itself means something yeah, else. Yeah, but, but like ID is ID. It's not like capital ID. It's just ID. Yeah, I, I think the reason why the CSS property names is such a weird one to get over that uncanny valley is just that you, you've been doing the property names for so long. Yeah, the CSS one, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only just, one that screws it, you over with props is the class name. Class name is the only one. Yeah. And if you learn that, you're fine. That's not a big I've, deal. I literally fixed a bug in that that I wrote in the forums on this project. I wrote it like two months ago. I fixed a class equals. It reacts like, I don't know what class is. Are, did you yeah, mean class Yeah, that should name? be in your linter. What the hell? Well, we have linting. I don't know. I don't know. There? I feel like that's in the like the baseline ESLint config. It probably does warn you, but uh, another tooling conversation. I cannot get people to like ESLint, but don't even respond because oh, I, I want to keep talking about style components. Okay, going back to style components. Mm -hmm. Camel case CSS property names is weird, and it's a. Uh, I still have trouble dealing with it, and I think that's part of why I prefer the CSS modules pattern. I'm not telling anyone to to do one thing or the other. Use what you like, as, as long as it's CSS modules. I don't know. It's they, they yeah. both have advantages and disadvantages. I feel like style components are starting to become more popular and become more of a thing because one of the things about React is that you kind of just JavaScript all the things, and style components seems to fall into that. So this is the reason why style components, I think, work too. Style components are still border dash radius. They're written the same way. They're just in a template tag. Yeah, so it's and tick, that's tick. the other. Yeah, so that's the other thing with style components is that all of your your object of your properties and your values is wrapped inside of a, a string literal ES6 template. The ES6 template, which mm -hmm. changes your syntax highlighting. It changes your well, the syntax highlighting, I think, syntax is the biggest thing you for fix. Me. VS Code has packages for it. Well, it just looks weird. No, they just have literal. Weird, they have literal it packages. Looks weird. Where if you're looking at the example on their web page, it says const button equals style dot a, which we'll get into backtick, and then everything in there is just straight CSS. And you can see down at the bottom, they're like dollar sign bracket props function props dot primary and CSS. Boom, add something. Yeah, and then this. But the other thing too is that this is inside of your component. Yeah, this is which, inside of your JSX file. It doesn't which, have to be. You can. Oh, really? You can make. That's so. True. You no, it's always been this way. You can make the style. Actually, it might have changed when they removed compose from style components. You can make a JavaScript file, which is fun. I think it's a JSX file that is called like buttons button dash style dot JSX. Not and button in that, dot style. Whatever it doesn't matter. Button dash style dot JSX whatever or .js, whatever it is. And then in there, you can literally export const so button red a equals, module. and then you export the thing. Yeah, you build a module out of it. So then you're just doing the same thing that you do with CSS modules, except you're writing your CSS in JavaScript instead of CSS. I, yeah, that It sounds weird, but the one key reason why this works, and this is necessary, is that you can pass properties two style components directly from say authoring like props or something like that props to it and you can you can they're just functions it's just functional 
To be fair, that is actually a very fair point. That is that's a the only that point that I think it, it's one of the main reasons why it makes sense. But this does style components requires that you're server rendering because Ooh. you can't because you if you pass a property into it, it either needs a default. So like you would say, uh, by default in this style component component props.primary has a default prop or the value of that if it was say if you took it out of the components you're ignoring props and you put it in its own file and it's a function you're going to pass like ops or a comma separate a list of arguments you'll right. say like primary so you'll then say primary at the top of the function equals true or false so you'll default it at the function line right so it'll have a default but what if that button is not primary at a cough. What if it's not primary? What if the button that you actually have on this page is secondary and it's like turquoise? When it renders from the server, it's going to be white and then it's going to switch to turquoise. And I hate that. I am a big, big, big proponent. Flash of wrong content. Flash of faux woe. What do we call it? Flash of wrong Wrong content. Faux falk. Weren't we joking about Falk. that one time? Flash of wrong it's content. Fuck. I don't know. It was something. But because yeah. that's the sound that I make when I'm dealing with this is fuck. What we're so we're we were on styled components. I we are know. on the differences between styled components and CSS modules. How you are a house style components and I'm Well, house I'm CSS becoming modules. a house style components person. So, anyways, the thing I was think I was trying to conclude that with is that when when you want to make your to go full circle to the different sides of the the coin there when you want to make your css as modular and as atomic and as organized as your actual react components you can go a whole nother level that's optional in style components you don't have to you can literally just put the styles in the components with it you can put them in a file called styles.js right next to it you can do really whatever you want to but you can also create like a whole nother layer of styling where your styling is all done atomically and everything is organized really neatly like your components are. That's its own little thing. Separate from the components? Sure, yeah. How do you handle your component specificity then? Well, you you, just the components would import modules? the specific styles you need to. So you have like a styled button and you'll say... This styled button, it becomes a red style button by wrapping the style button with a styles dot but red dot button. So it's like you have to look at their documentation, but you can you can start to wrap things like an onion. So you create a button that then you apply the red class to. And then you apply in reality, you wouldn't really apply red, you'd be like primary, button, primary, button, secondary. And you can basically rebuild bootstrap or some kind of styled situation from scratch within your own components, within your own app. Interesting. If you want to. Now, you don't always need to do that because you're just building like a simple app. Um, but the other thing I wanted to really conclude and point in, uh, add in, is that you also need to serve a rendered style components because once you make your CSS dependent on JavaScript in that way and you have variables being passed to it, you have to server render it so the variables come with it or things are going to flash with the wrong styling, the wrong colors. Oh, fuck. Sure. So that's really important too, which adds a whole nother level of complexity, but I think it's a tool that you should have in your tool, your toolbox, which is one of the reasons why I believe 
create React app supports, style components, CSS modules, straight SAS, post CSS, and just straight CSS out of the box. Those are the ones I'm pretty sure they've chose. If, I know Gatsby does all. Gatsby does CSS modules out of the box. It does yeah. style components out of the box. I don't think it does SAS, but it does have a it has Gatsby post CSS SAS or it does post, have post CSS. Yeah. I don't think you have to do the post CSS anymore. I think that there's a Gatsby level, Gatsby source level CSS package that does all that stuff for you. Yeah, and, and uh, Create React App does the same thing and has like a CSS widget type library for Webpack that kind of makes all of those work uh, transparently. It's like, these are the ones we support. They all work. If you use those, you're great. Yeah. If you use something different, good luck. Yeah. The nice thing about Gatsby is they'll be like, hey, you want to use less? Cool, Gatsby less. Plug in, boom, yeah. done. Yeah, they maintain Wired. those and like, yeah. They make the config work really nicely with their config. So, yeah. That's not bad. So, I don't know. CSS uh, is something that uh, I I understand, like, fundamentally how to structure it because it's just like structuring anything else, like any other component, any other... La- you're modularizing it. All of those things make perfect sense to me. It's just then when I go to actually, like, make it look right. I'm like, I don't care how it looks in Firefox. Yeah, it's a very abstract way of thinking about how to make things look on a web page, right? Like, explaining what the concept of margin is or anything, just box model in general with how you actually use those properties is actually not that straightforward. Yeah. If you think about it. Explaining box model is not, but then how do you use box model to make it look like what a designer wants? That's not simple. That's not simple. Yeah. yeah it's really... Exactly. The, so, the, the trickiest thing that always, always to this day gets me about CSS, and we'll, we'll move on after this. Font color is not a thing. It's just color. Yeah. There's some weird stuff in there. There's some weird... They've decided to name things in a very strange way. So yeah, font color gets me every time. I, to this day, and employer potential employers out there, don't don't knock me for this, but I, to this day, when I think, oh, I need to change the color of that font, I type out font-color and start putting like blue or red or whatever in there. And then go, why is this not hitting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why is this not showing up correctly? I've never oh, wait, had that font problem. Not a thing. And I'm sure a lot of people haven't had that problem, but you probably just put it in people's brain. They're That's gonna fine. have that problem now. That's fine. I don't know because font weight is a thing. Yeah. Font size. So right. So all of your other attributes for font that you'd be changing are font dash whatever. Font yeah. dash weight bold. Font dash size 14 px. Font dash color equals blue. Like it just naturally follows that pattern, right? But it's just one of those idiosyncrasies of CSS that you wouldn't know. Well, you also you wouldn't. You also times. wouldn't imagine that uh, if you put a color white on a div, and then there's a P inside of it, the P's text is now white. Yeah, yeah, it has so some, invisible. CSS has these weird things about how things nest down through the tags and such. So, yeah, again, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears dealing with that stuff to learn it. Yeah, and it's like it's one of those things where uh, you just have to learn those things, and I just choose not to. Like, I'll set up the CSS modules, I'll make it build, I'll set up a structure for someone to write their CSS, I'll do all kinds of stuff. But then, unless I really, really, really have to, I don't want to be writing actual CSS. And if I have to, because I'm building some kind of like 
internal application where there isn't a front end dev, then I'll just use Bulma or Bootstrap. Bootstrap. What about Material? Uh, it's too. It's too Google. It's pretty heavy handed with the Google. Yeah, it's very Google. I like it. It looks. It's pleasing to look at. They've done like a lot of research. Into I like it. that how they have like built in animations and yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff there. It is very Google though. So check all those out. Use what you like, folks. Yeah. Become become. Join whichever house you want to join. We're not telling you to use one or house the other. Targaryen. Totally. I mean. Just house CSS modules for the win over here. I mean, I think it, the the important thing that I would say is just don't treat if you're if you're not a front end like a like a heavy front end. All I do is styles and animations and things that are very difficult, and I commend people for doing those things. Like if if you want to be on that side of the coin, you probably already know most of the things we're talking about. If you're kind of in the middle and you want to be like one of these unicorn like foliage stack people, then, you know, take some time to actually not just understand CSS, but understand these, these other things that are coming because React has made regular front end so much more powerful, so much faster with server rendering and just the fact that it renders really fast and so much cleaner with the way that it is written and the way that it's modular and props work and everything about it is really, really nice. The final component of it is how you style it. And I can tell you that if you try, if you, you try certain ways to style things and you will find that it's more difficult than you think. That's I all think, I have to say. I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah. And my pick, I have one. You have I a pulled pick? It out. Yep. Holy crap. I got this book a long time ago because I was looking at a Medium article uh, where this guy was explaining how CSS Grid worked with uh, these like really cool images that were animated inside of Medium. They were like GIFs that showed you um, what things looked like. And he recommended this book. It's called CSS Visual Dictionary by... Greg Seidelnikov, please forget me or forgive me. <laughs> forget me. Do that too, but forgive me if I said that wrong. But this book, CSS Visual Dictionary, is really cool because it basically not just goes through and talks about styling, but it literally, I'm going to hand it to you now so you can look at it, literally shows you how things look like by showing little graphics that are like GIFs. Now, obviously, this would be more useful if it was animated. So if you had like a digital version of this book that was animated, it'd be really cool. But like that that Medium article was just so cool because it was showing you like what would happen if you did space between and it would like increase the space between and then snap back. I think I recall the article that you were referring to. And yes, it was very fascinating and it was very nice to see a lot of the stuff in action. Yeah. And then I bought that book. Uh, it's very similar to... Those other two books that you were pointing out over there. What are they called? Because uh, I can't. Uh, John Duckett's books. The brown. I call them the brown books. Yeah. There's one called HTML and CSS, and there's one called JavaScript and jQuery. We'll have yeah. links to those as well. Uh, I think if you're starting out in development and you've never done anything and you want to read books, those are very good books. Those are really good books. They're really good books. Uh, very nicely designed, and they do a really good job of visually explaining a lot of different things. So they look really nice. The JavaScript one is a little, little on the thick side, so it might be hard to get through. But when I was learning how to do web development, those were the Bibles mm -hmm. of code for me. Those were 
the place to go to figure anything out. I mean, uh, offline, I guess. But yeah, though, I've learned a lot from those and they're definitely worth having on the bookcase. But this book looks amazing too. I'm, I, they They have a lot of pictures of the different things that you would use for CSS. They have Flexbox stuff in here, which means that it's relatively up to date. So that's pretty cool. I'm liking this. We'll have links for this in the show notes, folks. This will be, this is a good one. Yeah. I have not had, again, I haven't had uh, time to read it because most of the time I'm just working or playing Destiny. But um, it looks good and there is going to be a time that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to teach myself CSS. I don't know when it's going to be. It might be when I retire. Who knows? See, the thing is you don't just like... No, like... Spend a few hours and you're like, oh, I know CSS now. No, of course. You kind of... It's definitely, I think more so than any anything else that I've done in web development, it's definitely a, you just learn kind of a handful of tricks and then you just kind of throw all those tricks at whatever it is you're styling to try to get to do what you needed to do. And the rest you just have to figure out on a case-by-case basis, so. Yeah, I think what I was getting, what I think what I meant by that is that it's not that I'm gonna like sit down, read this book and know CSS. It's just that, if I know the fundamentals well enough, then I can, if someone was to ask me, uh, you know, not just like for this internal project, but for this client, can you style this? Like for whatever reason, we really, really need you to style this masthead. Can you do it and make it work on every browser and be on these 5,000 breakpoints or whatever it is that some designers make you do? Um, I would be like, yeah, I can figure that out. And I can... I would pretty much preface it and be like, hey, I'm not going to be as efficient as like Albert at building it. But yeah, I can, if you need me to do that, I can do that. And that's one of the things that I want to sit down one day and be like, I'm going to teach myself this stuff and obviously continue to learn it. But I could say to somebody one day, yeah, I can style that. Or yes, I can handle that. Like there's some tech directors that we work with that you could literally ask them to do anything. Like one in particular I'm thinking about, you could ask him to do backend, he'd build a Terraform thing. He'd set up AWS, he'd do this. You need him to style something? Yeah, he's going to style it. You need him to like build a deployment system? He's going to do that. Is he like really good at all of those things? Uh, you know, he's v- pretty damn good at all of them, but he's kind of like a jack of all trades. So that's Times. where I think it would be good to be at. I think it's worth worth it. Uh, a little bit of CSS will take you a long way. So I think it's worth spending some time on. Yeah. But so, you know me. I don't do a little bit of anything. Well, just keep us posted. Let us know how yeah, it goes. You know, and by the time I retire, I'll, I'll, I'll know how to write be, Well, stuff. you know what? We'll still be doing the podcast then, so it'll be fun. Yeah. We'll, we'll retire on the success of the podcast. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. That'd be nice. Greg, so, my pick has nothing to do with CSS. Oh, you didn't because, plan. Uh, it has zero to do with CSS. <laughs> I mean, we did we did talk agree to talk about CSS like over dinner, like so. literally like maybe an hour or two ago. So yeah. it's fine. Uh, so I was on a plane this weekend, and I uh, prepared for this flight by downloading a couple movies from Netflix onto my phone, so I did not have to pay the fourteen dollars for Wi-Fi for an hour and a half flight. Uh, so I watched a movie called Polar, uh, which came out on Netflix uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it is a film based on a graphic novel uh, of the same title. I think uh, the full title is Polar Came In From The Cold. Uh, it is about a retired assassin who gets pulled back into the life for a couple of reasons. 
it, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was a very good action movie. Uh, it was sufficiently bloody, but not too bloody. Uh, and there's a lot of, there, there's a very kind of graphic novel-ish visual style to it that I thought that I really enjoyed. Um, the main actor is Mads Mikkelsen, a very uh, good actor, very famous dude. He uh, played Le Chief from Casino Royale, the first James, uh, yeah, he's in Craig a, Bond he's movie. In he's in a lot of stuff. He's been, he's been around for a while, but he does a great job. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens is, isn't as well in a very, in a role that you wouldn't expect her to be in. Like I had forgotten that she was in the movie even after, like it was halfway through the movie and I was like, oh wait, that's Vanessa Hudgens. That doesn't look anything like her though. But I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a good action movie. Um, if you are bored or looking for something like that, uh, I believe having seen the end of this movie, I'm not going to spoil anything, that there will be more of the movies. So it might mm. be worth jumping on and getting on with it but uh yeah go check that out polar on netflix i will have to check that out yeah it's a good one hmm. i'm looking at what else he's been in and nothing casino royale is the one that yeah, i think, casino of I, think of I feel like he's been in so many things there's something that i remember him being in that is like a movie that or a show that I've seen all that he does it's like really a good popular. villain. He was Although, in Doctor Strange and he was always oh, in Rogue One. That's where because I remember I saw him recently. He was he was the one of the bad like, guys, one of the think. commanders or something. The one of the commanders, yeah. Oh, okay, anyways, yeah. he does play a very good bad guy, but we'll have yeah. links to that in the show notes. Cool, 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 cool. Greg, so are you gonna go learn some CSS? I'm going to go play some Destiny. We'll see if I get home on time. That sounds good. Yeah. Greg, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Yeah, cast I've iron, bro. Cast iron all day no, long. Ca- Just do it. No, eggs stick to cast iron. Little olive oil will solve your life. Man. No, whatever. So little butter. No, listen. Eggs we're specifically. Gonna, no, we're we're going to go over this. No, we're cast not. Cast iron is the way to go. I have if cast you don't iron pants. want If you don't want the eggs to stick, mm-hmm. here's how I do it. You buy CSS some bacon. margin bacon. You buy some bacon. <laughs> yeah. You cook that first in the pan. Yeah. All right. And then you bake the pan so you seal it. Well, the, this is assuming that you've had the pan. I've had my. I've had my. I have cast, cast iron. iron. For, You're talking. You're preaching to the choir. Years. I have cast iron. So pans, what you do is that you cook and I it. season them. You you cook the bacon <coughs> first. Yeah. Take the bacon out. Leave the bacon hot bacon grease in the pan. You're giving me a heart attack right now. Little dab butter. Throw that bad boy in there. Butter on top of bacon. Yeah. So. To mix it around, get it all nice and even, and then cook, and then toss your eggs in there. Boom, done. Doesn't stick. Mm. Also, and even if it does, it's okay because that means like the cooked, the burnt bits of, not burnt, but like the really, really well done bits of egg and like the salt and cheese or whatever you're putting in your eggs gets down into that pan and becomes becomes part of your pan, Craig. Mm-hmm. You want uh, that stuff in there, man. I'm telling yeah, you. I don't anyway. always eat bacon for one and two. 
I have like five cast iron pans. I I know how they work. You need For one me, cast iron pan. Well, I have different sizes. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm. I like cooking. I have different size pans. I have like one with the ridges for cooking steak if my barbecue's not on. Why would you need? You don't want uh, ridges hey, for the steak. You know, I. Well, you don't want ridges for the steak. Well, for chicken, whatever. No, you don't want ridges. <laughs> what do you not need? Whatever. We're you on. don't want ridges for the steak because you want to. You want that pan to be flat and hot as a mother. Yeah, but you the pans get it. hot as a mother, and then you get those little ridges. But you want to sear, sear it lines. because you want to. You want that whole side of the steak. I can't believe we're talking about this right now. You want to sear the whole side of the steak evenly on both sides. So you want I to cook be steak. You don't want to, I'm changing your mm-hmm. life. Oh man. No, I've oh, cooked. Man. We should have taught. We should have just done this for the whole episode. No, we're talking. The way much that you more cook a steak. Things. No, no, no. no, no you can't explain eggs. No, we have to do this. The way that you cook a steak in a cast iron pan, you heat that thing until it's smoking, literally smoking. Mm-hmm. It should be seasoned enough and hot enough to where the seasoning is actually starting to smoke off the pan. You throw the steak in there and sear the crap out of both sides of that steak. For like a minute or two. Like a mi- not even I know. a minute. Usually yeah, 45 seconds to a minute is all you need. That thing should be sizzling hot. And then you throw it in the pan and do maybe a minute, 30 to two minutes on each side, depending on how thick the steak is. And then you put it in tinfoil. Well, you, you, you let it rest. So you take it out of the pan. Well, you leave it mm-hmm. in the pan after you're done cooking for a little bit to have it bring everything back in. And then you take it out and plate it and have it rest while you're plating. But yeah, you don't need ridges for that. You want it to be flat so it sears the meat. I've done it with the ridges and it comes out fine. And uh, I don't care. You got works. scammed. You got scammed. There, there's a regular size pan. Okay, well, I that have works four pans. We're, and we're then, off like topic. a giant pan if you want to do I multiple have, steaks. Well, I well, have like five cast iron pans. It's fine. I can use the other ones. It's, it's fine. Maybe, maybe if you knew as much about CSS as you did about pans, then you'd have a better time at work. I don't, I don't, I was trying no. to bring it back. I don't think no, that no, no. no, you talk too long about food and oh, now man. we lost I, people. I, I'm, I am very passionate about cast iron skillets and cooking steaks in the cast iron skillets. Okay. Steaks. Yes. I totally agree with you, but eggs, I don't know. Always eggs. Unless I, cook, you, I cook as many things as I can in the pan as possible. Yeah, but it's unless you, I'm telling you, unless you cook it in butter and bacon fat, they stick. The eggs will stick and they will crack. The the yolks will break, and that's the don't oh, even see. I am team scrambled. So. Oh well, I'm not. So well, I sometimes. So here's the thing. No, you're not going on another side topic. No, the thing with scrambled <laughs> is that you can make them anything that you want. I just you make, can CSS your scrambled eggs. So they're like style you components. Put, you can you can. You can do. Uh, We're not cheese. Come on. Cheese weight uh-huh. heavy. Cheese weight normal. Cheese eat, weight light. I don't eat cheese. Salt true. Pepper uh, true. <laughs> right? It's a much boring component it's, then. Uh, oh man, You're like once the cheese is gone. Come on. Cons, con, uh, cons scrambled. Cons eggs scrambled equals true. Anyways. <laughs>